welcome to Afternoon Delight. Real people and real stories. A local podcast for local artists. And welcome back to Afternoon Delight with myself, Jory Delight. Well, do you know what? I will give them their due. Carding was an absolute iconic guest to have yesterday. Their work, exceptional. Their outlook, exceptional. I'll not stop going on about how amazing that interview was, actually. I know that a couple of people at TSMGO had actually messaged me saying how much they enjoyed it. So, such a privilege to have you, Carding. I can't wait to see what you do in the future. And I can't wait to eventually get to meet you an actual person, like actual real humans. Isn't that an incredible idea? Do you know, there's been so much on social media the last couple of days with drag. I mean, it just feels if you're in this drag community, a never-ending bloody battle, doesn't it? Uh, So I think we need a light-hearted episode of Afternoon Delight that has totally nothing to do with drag. Uh, I am so excited to have this next guest when I emphasise to all of you just how much he and his partner, Sarah Peachy, have changed so many countries across the world, I am not joking when I say they have both changed, alongside the help of people like Matt Rhodes and Emily Ingram, so many people in this company. At the beginning of the pandemic, things got very hard in March 2020 for a lot of people. I myself was a drag artist that, you know, I had nothing essentially when the pandemic started. You know, all my DJ gigs were gone. All of my performing jobs were gone. All of my everything literally stripped, stripped away. I was in a bit of a fortunate situation, in all honesty, and this is going to sound very weird to say it this way, but when I wasn't well, needing lung transplant, I had kind of already started to get rid of things that I couldn't do anymore. So, you know, I only DJed when I could. You know, I was on call and I did my night once a month and that was it. And I was studying at uni, but I wasn't really kind of doing very well because I was constantly off. So, you know, things weren't looking good for me. And my show, The Honeymoon Period, which won the award in 2020 by The Young Scott, was literally kind of... I'd said to friends in this most sad, um, sort of negative way, it was looking like my last show before transplant and potentially my last show ever because, you know, the brutal reality with lung transplant, as you might not recover, um, there's a 20% chance. So I had mentally and physically prepared myself for that. And I was just like, I constantly explained to people and highlight, I was just so lucky Capture came to me when it did and changed CF as we know it. And... Rob Miles from TSMGO in March, when everything hit, had this incredible idea to go on Twitter. And and I bring this up only because, you know, at the beginning I say, oh, there's drag drama. It's always on Twitter. But it's so lovely that on Twitter, this was a positive thing to come out of it. Um, He put a post out to say he was thinking of doing a Shakespeare reading group. And 14 months later, there is a fully realised company doing Shakespeare's works and text similar and more uh, on Zoom. And it has given so many audiences hope, excitement, determination for actors, performers, artists like myself. You know, I am a drag artist. I've went back to acting through doing TSMGO and other things like the National Theatre Scotland and so on. And I was so fortunate that my friend Maz 
really good friend um, who I've known for years who lives down south um, had contacted me out of the blue saying, could I call you? Could I give you a, a wee vo- voice note? Um, someone's dropped out of our show. I do like to say now, you know, I can imagine TSM and Joe, maybe they were a bit stressed. This is my opinion, not theirs. Maybe they were a bit like, oh, no, we to recast. What are we going to do? And there's me thinking, well, I'm glad that person's cancelled because I'm looking for something to do right now. And it was such an absolute delight of a show to be in Christmas Carol um, and do, I mean, two roles, Tiny Tim and the Witch from Macbeth and the chorus, I feel like I really was thriving and in my element playing the angelic um, protagonist and the catty witch. I think that's my two playing roles. So thank you, Rob and TSMGO and Emily for casting me. It has given so many people hope. I feel like this had to be one of the episodes as this is the last season of Afternoon Delight and I have mentioned that a couple of times that we have... As of now, four episodes left, and that's us. So I'm so thrilled to let him come and talk about the work he's done with TSM Duo and his own work as an artist, actor, performer. It is the incredible Rob Miles. Welcome back to Afternoon Delight. You know what? We have got an absolute delightful guest next. He has been behind such a revolutionary thing during the pandemic that has gave a lot of actors, performers, stage managers, anyone in the arts hope. It is, of course, the show must go online's very own. Rob Miles, how are you doing? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Thanks so much for having me, Jodie. It's a pleasure to be on. Absolutely brilliant to have you. And I was obviously saying to you just before we started recording that the show must go online, I think, has really given a lot of people hope and we'll be covering later hope in the episode, but... Hope is the season for season three. It felt only right with season three being last season to get the main man behind it all to come and share his stories before the show must go online and everything you've done for everyone. It's honestly so incredible. So I'm so glad to have you. Um, So would you mind introducing yourself for me? Of course, yes. I'm uh, Robert Miles. I'm an actor, writer and director. I'm the creator of the Shakespeare deck and the show must go online. Absolutely brilliant. And it's, it's exciting because... I'm really interested to get to know a little bit more about you as an artist and as an, as an actor and writer yourself before we kind of get on to Show Must Go Online. Um, what for you, you know, um, before we start getting into the questions, what really kind of with the Show Must Go Online inspired you to start that? It's a really good question. I uh, have loved Shakespeare for a long, long time now. Um, maybe we'll dig into that a little bit later. But the the key thing was that Shakespeare's always been something that people have turned to in extreme times, if you like. And the story that was rattling around in my mind when I'd had a job cancelled and I'd been on Twitter and I'd seen like eight other friends in the same day say that they'd had jobs cancelled. And, you know, this pandemic was kind of coming our way. Uh, No idea how serious it was going to be, but um, the movie The Big Short talked about how they bet against the market because loads of people like to think that things are going to be okay. But if you bet against that and you assume the worst, then you might be wrong a lot of the time, but in the occasions that you're right, it really pays off. So I was looking at this pandemic coming towards us and I was like, this could be awful. And if it is, what are we going to need? And the story that popped into my mind was of Nelson Mandela and what they call the Robben Island Bible. So they they took a complete works of Shakespeare and they changed the cover on it to a Hindu um, holy text because you were allowed to have holy texts for religious purposes in prison. And uh, 
so they, they, they disguised it in that way. And the prisoners used to um, essentially exchange this book from cell to cell. And each prisoner would underline lines and quotes that meant something to them. Uh, and Nelson Mandela underlined a line in Julius Caesar, which was, um, uh, cowards die many times before their deaths, the valiant only taste of death but once, um, which obviously was incredibly meaningful and, and potent and powerful for him at that time, uh, not knowing if he was ever going to be released uh, from prison at that point. And uh, it's, it's always been the case that it's something to do with the universality of Shakespeare or the way that he can, the way that he can take uh, situations, extraordinary situations, and kind of elevate them to this kind of mythic scale that allows everyone to identify with something in them uh, when it's done well. And so I, as a, as a long-time lover of Shakespeare, just thought um, we artists, all of whom are losing work right now and all of whom might be, like, confined to their bedrooms, you know, they're, they're going to be in, in a form of prison uh, themselves, are going to need a means of escape. And because I was familiar with Zoom from some other work that I'd done before. Um, I had the idea that cameras off could be off stage, cameras on could be on stage. That's about as far as I got with the idea, but then just put it out on Twitter and said, why don't we do a reading group online and we'll do it in the evening so Americans can get involved. And it just ran and ran. It was honestly just a case of having the right idea at the right time, yeah. everyone piling on. And that that's the truth of it really, is that it wouldn't have existed without every single individual that um, that kind of backed it and, and thought that it was worthwhile. It's just incredible because it's just one of those things that it felt right and it's it's history now. It's part of the digital revolution, I think, in digital theatre and as someone that's also creating work for other places. Carding and me in yesterday's episode mentioned this, that Shakespeare is universal and one of the things I'd brought to them was that you know, I often felt like my drag was inspired slightly by Shakespeare and I write about that now mm -hmm. in articles and stuff and I just thought to myself, like, that's... It's really interesting that Shakespeare is universal, so it's it's so interesting. We'll get on later to the show must go online then and full in-depth conversation. But what I want to kind of ask you is, you know, let's find out a bit more about you. So where did you grow up, study, live, work before you ended up doing the show must go online? Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in a small town called Hoyland near Barnsley in South Yorkshire, or Barnsley, as we call it. Uh, I lived there until I went to university in Leicester. Uh, it was part of the whole new labour education, education, education years. And it was like, everyone must go to university. Uh, fortunately, I was one of the last years to go before the fees like leapt up to like nine grand a year or whatever it is now. Mm. Um, and I was the first in my immediate family to have gone. Uh, my dad I was a glazier, he cut glass for a living. My mum uh, was a mum for many years until I got old enough to wear clothes. And then she started a small business uh, as a, uh, of a, of a like children's clothes shop, essentially. And I think I got my first taste of performing doing fashion shows from my mum's uh, little small business, which was hilarious. Uh, unfortunately, uh, both my dad's glazing business uh, and my mum's uh, uh, just small kids clothing business both went uh, out of business <laughs> uh, at various points. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was about seven, which was a great thing. It was a really positive tale of divorce because I was just kind of like, okay, you guys don't get along. You're going to be happier, <laughs> separate. So will I. I get two of everything. Amazing. What could be better? So, you know, really trying to see the positive in it. And, uh, and I think they did the right things for themselves and for me. And, you know, always put me first and all that kind of thing. Mm. So ended up going to university in Leicester. I did psychology because it was the closest thing I thought to acting. 
uh, because it was all about the human mind and what motivates people and like what they you know what they care about and and what and what can happen to you when things don't go your way and all that kind of stuff and ended up doing a BSc which is a Bachelor of Science which meant that a third of mine was statistical modeling now I scraped to see in maths at GCSE and never looked back and thought I'm never going to use this again and then got on this degree and a third of it was like high hardcore maths and computing and I was like no uh, so got got through it if we if we put it that way um uh, and by the time I'd gone to university I'd done a little bit of because obviously I'd done my mum's fashion shows I'd done a couple of pantomimes at school um but I never there was no drama GCSE at my school uh and I went to Catholic primary and secondary school I actually had to get moved to that from the Church of England school because I was bullied by a teacher for writing my name with a d rather than a b um she used to call me Rodert all the time uh and so my parents were like nah I'm not having that wow uh, so they pulled me out of there uh, and I think that's why I'm now a writer. I think part of it's spite. <laughs> I think that's that's motivated me. Um, but yes, yeah, so I went to Catholic school. Uh, consequently, I'm an atheist, uh, and I'm now officially an apostate as well. I've had my name removed from the roles uh, of the Catholic Church, which is quite an quite an intense process uh, to get through. But uh, it's done now. Uh, but I do have one thing to thank the Christians for, which is that the YMCA actually funded a kids' drama club, out of school club. And that was where, as like a young teenager, I, I got to just open my brain to like physical theatre and like abstract stuff and like really just like nothing that you would have uh, ever like thought existed um, if you were just a, a regular kid in South Yorkshire in an ex-mining town. Um, we even got funded um, amazingly to go to Prague to like an international youth arts festival to perform a physical theatre piece that we did, which was just like unbelievable to like see that. I mean, the idea that theatre existed was a revelation. The idea that it existed worldwide blows your mind again. The idea that people might care that kids are going to do it blows your mind again. And so all of this stuff was just like, wow, this is, this is a real thing. Um, and, uh, you know, not, not knocking the pantos that we did at school either, because, you know, I played Robin Hood in one of those, and I'm now to this day obsessed with stage combat, and I think that's probably why. So, you know... That for you. I was going to say, I see yeah. that. <laughs> But pantos are great, uh, uh, but that was pretty much the only theatre that we knew about. Um, so then uh, did a couple of uh, plays, did a, did a short independent film uh, as a teenager, but then it was like, right, it's time to grow up, go to university, study a proper subject, get a job, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so as soon as I finished uh, university, I went to Japan for a year to teach English. Um, so uh, that was kind of my um, gap year, if you like, or rebellion against trying to grow up and do a real job. Yeah. Um, and that was absolutely amazing. But while I was there, I had some time. It was a, it was a big learning curve, big kind of growth moment. Uh, and I just realized that I'm not going to be happy if I'm not doing creativity in, in mm. some form or multiple forms even. Mm. Um, so when I got back, uh, I applied for a, a, a master's at Central got offered a place and it was £18,000 a year for two years. There was absolutely no way whatsoever that I was going to be able to afford that. So I decided I was just going to do it myself the hard way with the kind of arrogance and knuckleheadedness that you would expect from a working class straight white man uh, in those uh, in that decade. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was just, it was just graft really. And that's, that's continued pretty much ever since. Wow, that's so interesting. Psychology, I can see for you actually. Do you know that I heard <laughs> psychology, Rob? Really? And then I went, no, actually, I can totally see that because uh, I'm looking at potentially going back to uni now to part-time study that 
Um, and, and I thought to myself, it is the psychology of roles and characters and pieces that I can totally understand what you mean, um, getting mm. character things. I'm interested, obviously, in sort of this background. You know, you talk about being a youth group and doing sort of shows and stuff. What was it like then doing that performance in Prague? What was that like for you as sort of a big deal? Like, I just, I'm just curious. It was bonkers because the stage was far too big. Like we were working in like a little village hall in like a function room. And so we'd created a piece that fit that space. And then we got there and it was like a big festival stage, like for a music festival or something like that. And there were umpteen stages. I can't remember how many it was, but there were probably 25 stages in the, in the venue. Uh, and everyone was just free to roam. So it wasn't necessarily that you had like a dedicated audience. People might just be walking past and then have a little look and see. And so I think we probably played to an audience of maybe 80 to 100 on a stage that was built for maybe 10,000. <laughs> so it was like, felt just, and already you're a teenager, so you're like a small human. <laughs> so you're just feeling completely dwarfed and overwhelmed by it all. Um, but it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. I remember, because it was a physical theater piece, it was the middle of a heat wave and it was like 38, 40 degrees. Um, and so we were just wet by the time we got off stage. Um, and I think that was the, yeah, that was it. I remember there was a guy with one of those little trolleys uh, with, with cold drinks. And it was the first time I ever tried peach iced tea. And to, to this day, that's like my favorite soft drink now, oh. because it's just the relief that came from that moment was just like, oh, I need this. Oh, that, <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. So tell me then, like, obviously stage combat and stuff, you know, like, Hearing about all that before Shakespeare, what got you into Shakespeare then? Shakespeare, um, there was a number, number of factors, I suppose. Um, I was cast in an amateur production in Doncaster when I was first trying to get myself established as any form of actor. So I was just like, I'm going to do anything that anybody offers me, let's, let's go. Uh, and I was offered the part of Oberon in Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And about two weeks into rehearsal, the director had a bit of a meltdown. <laughs> just went, it all just sounds the same. Uh, it was just really <laughs> frustrated with me. Because I thought, because it's all in couplets, all you do is just hit the rhyming words and just go, diddly 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 buh, diddly 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 buh. Uh, and it was just gash, it was rubbish. Um, and so uh, fortunately there were some kind of salty dogs in the in the crew who'd been to drama school and had a career in the West End and then retired and, you know, uh, those kind of people uh, that, that uh, orbit the amateur theatre world. Uh, and one of them gave me some advice. I can't remember even specifically what it was now. It might have been iambic pentameter or it might have been like hitting the verbs, for instance. But I just remember trying it and it made such a big difference almost immediately that I was just like, wow. Okay, so the more you look for, the more you find. And that kind of started the addiction and that's continued now for 13 years and it's still true. Um, but the, uh, the if, if that was the addiction, my dealer <laughs> was Ian McKellen because he did a tour of little theatres, amateur theatres, and he did as a Shakespeare workshop. And he like downloaded such a richness of information in so little time. And also obviously performed some for us as well. And he, he just knocked my socks off. He blew my mind. Um, it, he does this set speech a lot, actually. It's, um, it's from Thomas More. It's a play that Shakespeare co-wrote. Um, about strangers. So if you're putting Thomas More strangers Ian McKellen, you'll find like 15 different versions of him doing it on YouTube. It's well worth a look because it's always cracking. Mm. But for me, it was, it was his ability to make it what I would call more than real. So it sounded natural, 
it sounded epic, but it sounded grounded. And it, it, it was like a tree and he had his roots in the earth, but he had his branches in the sky. Mm. And there was just something about it that, that was, um, that was I just had that mythic quality really. And I just thought, I wanna be able to do that. Cause that, that sounds like magic in my ear, you know, like that's, it sounds like something special and, and wonder filled. Um, and then really after that, it was a matter of it being resistance training for actors. It's the hardest, most technically precise yeah. form of acting. You've got to be an intellectual as well as an athlete, as well as a performer in order just to be able to get your mouth around some of the words, but have the lung capacity to get those huge long lines out and stuff like that. So if you can do it well, everything else should come easier. And that was the kind of the logic behind it, really. That's so interesting, because I don't know if you know that I obviously, uh, I was funded by Sir Ian McKellen to go study at ECA, and I met him in his friend show. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I did not know this. This is amazing. Tell me more. Oh, he's really, you know, I, won't, I won't take up the episode with it, but he was really lovely. I saw him do a Shakespeare excerpt in his friend show, and I remember, and I'd be lying if I said which one, because I was so in awe of him performing, I didn't even think about which one it would have been. Um, yeah. I totally understand what you mean with even him, I think he's in his... I probably shouldn't even say his age, should I? In his 70s, I think, at the earliest. Uh, I even the 80s now. <laughs> he'll be happy. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he, like like you said, they're just, it was fluid. It just came out and it felt natural. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting because I've never been able to do that. So when I've been doing the show Must Go Online, I've been like, right, I want to push myself and get back into my Shakespeare because it's been since 2014, up until the pandemic that I'd done it. Um, right. chat, chat me through then some of like the highlights of your career before doing the show must go online then. Sure, yeah. I mean, obviously Ian McKellen, as we've mentioned, that that was that was a career, that was a life highlight. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but also, I've I've had a number of like crazy things happen to me as a result of just like being a freelancer that does a lot of like theatre and film and writing and kind of like creative adjacent things. Uh -huh. So um, one thing I did was a documentary about the Musketeers. Um, and that, that meant that I had the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles entirely to myself while the crew were packing down in one space and they cleared um, the public out of the Hall of Mirrors and the crew hadn't come through yet and I just gunned it. And so I was in there on my own, like probably, you know, like Louis the Fourteenth would have done over the morning. And I was just like... Oh, look at this! It's, oh, it's far too much. It's so gaudy in the best possible way. So that was wild. Um, I've been to the foothills of uh, the Himalayas in Azad Kashmir. I filmed a documentary in 2007 uh, to raise funds for the earthquake victims there to get them a health centre built for a number of isolated villages that I think they were like a six hour drive from the nearest healthcare. Uh, and as a result, far more people died in that region than needed to because it was things like infection, starvation, injuries, stuff like that, that if, the, if it had been treated, could have been prevented. So uh, that was amazing. Uh, some amazing roles in Shakespeare that I've played that I've absolutely loved from Benedict and Bottom to Brutus, Friar Lawrence. Um, I'm not going to list them all, <laughs> quite a few. Um, while I was in Japan, I trained uh, in samurai stage combat with the guy who choreographed the final fight in Kill Bill Volume 1, which was amazing. Um, I've swum with sea turtles in the Seychelles because I got to go out there to do a theatre job. Uh, and that was that's like a life thing because one of my absolute idols, and if I wasn't in um theater and and creative stuff i think i'd have been like a wildlife person because david attenborough is like my my idol 
<laughs> absolute legend. Um, and so that was like a, a huge thing for me. Uh, and then of course, Show Must Go Online. It's just really interesting hearing that you did that with the Kill Bill direct. That's incredible. Like, wow, that I would not have expected, but also I'm living for and loving. Like, that's, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, I feel like you're very similar to me, actually, because it's like me saying this or Ian thing, and you're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is a random thing that's happened. And it's, it's so interesting hearing you say that. I'm like, you what with the Kill Bill guy? Like, it's just so <laughs> love it. It's brilliant. So... Chat us through then the show must go online because you've just said there yourself that in 2007 you did that to help people. And I feel like at your core, you just want to help everyone like I do because even in the show must go online, you've helped so many artists internationally. I feel like what I need to really emphasize actually for my listeners is that the show must go online hasn't just been like a, a UK theatre company on Zoom, like if they aren't aware of who, what it is, but they should by now. It's been international. When I've done the two shows, it's been with people from the States, Canada, the UK, like everywhere. It, it's incredible. So chat us through the show Must Go Online a bit more. Yeah, of course. Yeah, very happy to. Uh, so the show Must Go Online uh, was a, a digital theatre project um, that very quickly became uh, an international movement, as you've uh, so rightly pointed out, to create Shakespeare for everyone for free forever. And that was the kind of strap line uh, that evolved over the course of doing it. Um, it started as a way for actors uh, and creatives to stay connected and creative during the pandemic because there's one thing uh, that is very difficult to do uh, as a performer or as someone that works in theatre is to create something on your own in isolation <laughs> without an audience. And so um, we wanted to make sure that people had a platform uh, to keep their skills sharp as well because this is a hyper-competitive industry that can be quite savage at times and thinking about having 18 months or, or however long it was going to be um, of not doing the job uh, I think would have left some people um, very rusty if not out of their minds because I think that's the other thing you know we never had a budget uh, for anything that we did so everyone volunteered their time and talent freely which was just an incredible contribution of more than 500 actors and creatives from six of the seven continents 60 countries involved by the end um, and same with viewership as well I think we've had a quarter of a million views now we've won three awards uh, from off west end including the fifth ever one-off awarded uh, for kind of special projects which was uh, felt felt really momentous uh, to kind of cap the series off when we did the tempest at the end um, and it's still going you know because um chums gone line we did the 36 first folio shakespeare shows one a week every week in the order they were believed to have been written and that was a whole crazy insane marathon uh, but now uh, we're opening up and we're doing all kinds of other like early modern and, and adjacent works we've got the sonnet project going on we've got 154 actors doing 154 different sonnets um, we've had um, pericles uh, we've also had Galatea by John Lilly uh, and uh, Emily Ingram, the incredible Emily Ingram, uh, multifaceted, multi-talented wonder that she is, is going to be doing uh, a month of Marlowe as well very soon. So we're going to get some Marlowe plays happening as well. It's very exciting. Um, and, you know, the show has gone online has evolved rapidly and constantly throughout its existence. Uh, the audience demanded in the first week a Patreon page uh, so that they could contribute to the people taking part. And so that works on one person, one share on, on an opt-in basis, but there's no criteria. You just say, I want it or I don't. It's obviously not all actors are struggling, but many are. So we want to support people uh, as much as we could. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're now at the point where 
we're, we're slightly reformatting. I've stepped back into the role of artistic director. Um, so I'm not directing all the shows as I did in the first folio. Um, but we're now looking to try and champion underrepresented groups in theatre uh, and underrepresented voices uh, in the director's chair as well, because what we, what we found, the show must go online always had a really collaborative atmosphere and it was about the wisdom of crowds and all that kind of thing. And, and that became more and more uh, prevalent and prominent as the, as the shows went on. Um, uh, but what we're finding now is that it's not just about the, the diversity of voices saying the words, it's also about the diversity of perspectives that are shaping them. Uh, and so that's something that we're looking to continue to uh, kind of champion as we move on. And, and hopefully we'll have some exciting stuff in that regard. Um, Mariam Grace, who did Pericles, um, did it uh, with a focus on uh, the migrant experience. Uh, Rachel Chung, who did Galatea, uh, was looking at that through the lens of uh, the LGBT experience. And I think the, the kind of, um, what's the word, the kind of catchphrase that that was hanging off, if you like, or the core theme. The core theme is a better way to put it, is gender euphoria, which I just thought was a wonderful reframe uh, of what can sometimes be obviously a, a challenging moment in people's lives. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's all kinds of fascinating and unique potential there to, to be brought out of these uh, early modern works. I think Shakespeare and, and his contemporaries knew that by abstracting away from their own time, by not writing about the early modern era, but writing about, say, classical Greece or Rome or whatever, Illyria, you know, Bohemia, let's just make places up. Um, they knew that by, by removing themselves in that way, and part of this was to do with censorship, they had to um, do that because they weren't allowed to comment on the politics of their own time. But that, that by removing it that one degree, that's what universalizes it and makes it feel like it can still be relevant today because it's not just about this is what's happening right now. They had to, they had to, they had to because of censorship, universalize the themes. And that's why it's still so useful to us to mine. And I think, you know, what, one, of the, one of the objectives that came through while we were doing the work was, was to... I suppose decolonize is one of the words that's being used, but but try and get Shakespeare out of the hands of the people that have co-opted it. And I say co-opted because it wasn't necessarily designed for this, for cultural imperialism, to say, we are British, we are the best, we have the best poet, you suck. And, and you know, if you look at Laurence Olivier and his like propaganda films of Shakespeare, you know, in RP, which is the, the voice of the ruling elite, which didn't exist at the time Shakespeare was writing, it was all designed to, to be a top-down, uh, kind of force um, of oppression, essentially a tool of oppression. And, and we wanted to break that mold and, and make it as inclusive and kick the door open and, and get so many other different voices and different people taking ownership of it and reclaiming it from that, from that legacy really. Yeah. Um, so that's hopefully what we can continue to do now as we, uh, as we push forward. You are doing incredible work, Rob. Like I have to say, like, I feel like we need to take you and put this in front of other straight white cis men and say this is how to act and behave <laughs> <laughs> well listen uh you, all right let's do it some advice for other cis het white men <laughs> um li listen listen and learn get comfortable being uncomfortable we had some really tough conversations during tsmgo and the only reason that it survived was because a community could come to this kind of shared watering hole and feel like their perspectives were valued. And the cishet white man perspective has been the dominant ruling perspective in creative work forever. Mm -hmm. 
which means that as soon as you push the needle even a tiny bit away from that, everything becomes so much more vivid, so much more interesting, so much more layered and textured mm. and, and fascinating to watch and provocative, right? And I, as one of those people, you know, I'm working class and that means that, especially in the theatre environment, certain doors have been closed to me, if you like, and it gives me just the tiniest little, tiniest little hook of intersectionality to just have a little bit of empathy for struggle and, and barriers and obstacles that get put in front of people. And that just that little bit of intersectionality allows me to know how much privilege I have. And it's that idea of privilege not being, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I haven't had, I've had an easy life or <laughs> that everything's been given to me, but just that there are obstacles that I don't face. Um, and knowing the ones that I do makes it easy to see others that I don't. Um, and just trying to be sensitive to those learning all the time and making mistakes all the time as well. And I think that's the other thing. We're at this like tipping, we're at this tipping point at the minute where I think, and I think this could be so positive if we do it, is to re, uh, to reframe what a good reputation is. So before having a good reputation meant never doing anything wrong, having a flawless record, being impeccable. Um, and, and never being subject to criticism. And I think the way that we've seen like theatres responding to abusers and drama schools responding to racism allegations, it's all in that old school world of, if we acknowledge that it's there, then that besmirches our reputation and we're ruined and we'll never recover. And that's actually the, totally the wrong attitude to be taken. Like now it feels like it's what people want is people to honestly acknowledge and reckon with and proactively deal with and, and earnestly apologize for times that they've got something wrong. And we're all gonna go through life making mistakes. We're all gonna go through life growing and learning and changing. And if you are growing and learning and changing, that means that you must have been more of a dickhead before, but you can get less of a dickhead progressively as you go along. And, uh, you know, I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, but it's, it's crazy that it feels like Eva Longoria has a place in history now because she went on the news and said about, well, well it's not just black women. And then everyone was like, what? Yeah, no, no. Um, and then she came out and she gave a full, earnest, frank apology explaining why she'd made the mistake, um, that it was a mistake, that she had got it wrong. And it was like one of the very rare examples of a good apology. Yeah. And I think that's something that we all need to get better at is understanding that no matter what your intentions are, no matter what your, you think your level of culpability is for a thing, we all share responsibility in things. We can all get things wrong and to be able to apologize earnestly and well and to, and to make the efforts grow and change off the back of that experience, actually use that as XP in computer game terms, like level, level yourself up through that experience. Um, I think that's that's what, especially we as straight white men, have to be cracking on with. Thank for you sure. for that. I really appreciate that. That was really helpful, actually. Thank you. It's really, it's interesting you talk about this because I've been talking to a lot of other artists about the fact that you have to learn from your mistakes and your history. You can't exactly pretend it didn't happen. So I totally, yeah. when you just said. So talk me through then, like, you know, what was it like directing shows on Zoom then? What, that, what was that experience like? <laughs> That was, it, it was a lot, it was a lot, uh, yeah. So Zoom is not the friendliest medium for theatre, but it's the one that we had. <laughs> and uh, the attitude that we always took was that all art exists within limits. And painters paint on a canvas that has a frame because it has a limit. Because if you had to paint forever, 
you'd never finish a piece. And you have to decide what's going to be in that frame and what's not. And that gives you composition and all the rest of it. So limitations actually give you freedom and actually give you space to play within. And so where many people were decrying the limitations of Zoom and, and other online uh, uh, kind of platforms, we, from the very beginning, just said, let's use it for what it's good for and let's try and get the most out of it that we can. And nine months, week after week, every single week, we found something new that we could do with the combination of the Zoom platform, um, its advanced features, if you like, but also just with actors and cameras and all that kind of thing. And I think what was extraordinary about it, and I'm, I'm so grateful that I've had a little bit of short film experience, actually, filming fight scenes actually is, is kind of my, my I've done some work as a fight director um, and so I've had a little bit of short film experience and the way the way of hybridizing um, Zoom as, as a combination of theatre, TV, film, radio and having these best practices from all these different disciplines that, that have to commingle and interact in order to try and eke out the best from it um, and I think that was that was one of the great advantages to, to, to the playfulness of, of being in the wild west there's no rules no one's done it before no one can tell you how to do it well so you've just got to find out and you've got to experiment you've got to push it and that was really fun um i think the international side of things was certainly an interesting challenge so like in week two we had um petruchio in los angeles california and uh our uh, kate was in australia so you've got really really opposite time zones and and then you've got us in the uk in the middle kind of like we're all as far away from each other as possible to get um and so that was really fun and challenging but like finding the right times to be able to go through and rehearse uh, was really exciting i think um different traditions as well is really interesting because actors in america train differently to those in england actors in um canada train differently again actors in australia train differently again and everybody has a different level of experience because obviously we wanted to welcome people of all levels of experience in the show must go online so we didn't just have professional actors we had complete amateurs that had maybe done a done a play at a community theater or maybe not even that uh, all taking part so it was a great opportunity for me to meet people at their level and then try and lift them from there so that they were getting something out of the, out of the experience i think that's one, again one of the values that we try to instill was that in order for this to not be exploitation, which is something, you know, we had, we had a serious existential meeting and we were like, do we shut this down? Does it count as exploitation, what we're doing? And the answer was no, but we can make it even less exploitative. So we, so we changed things. So we, the, on, the, on the form, you can say, when I'm free, <laughs> so that we will only use you when you're free and if you've got the commitments, you can do them. Um, and uh, we made sure that everyone left with a biscuit so the idea was that hopefully if you've if you've done the show must go online you'll have learned something from someone that will be useful to you when you go back out in the world um and so we wanted to make sure that all, all that kind of stuff was there and i think that has working with people of all those kind of different levels of experience different backgrounds it's just it's made me a lot less i don't think i was ever dogmatic but it's made me even less dogmatic mm. um and i think it's it's made me a better coach it's made me better at, at quickly finding out what someone's level is mm. and prioritizing what's going to make the big, biggest difference to them mm. in the quickest amount of time because we had so little time to rehearse on these you had like two and a half days and you've got 25 actors and you're like ah, right let's go uh, so it was it was very much about um, ha ha ruthless efficiency in that way i suppose optimization 
it's so interesting because when I did the Christmas show, obviously for Christmas Carol, and then I did my residency with On Five, I had mm. I'd written a monologue that I'd written with a woman in Fife who uh, runs a community project, and I was. Oh, nice. But doing our show on Zoom at Christmas helped me direct and stage her doing her monologue because I thought, right, I've done this as an actor. What can Jade do in the background? What can I get her to do blocking wise? How can we set this up so it looks cool? And I came away from that learning how to block stuff from you and Emily blocking stuff. So there you go. So it has made a difference. Um, and oh, to Carding yesterday that for me one of the biggest things was that you know it's been a horrible pandemic but I probably wouldn't have worked with people in Canada and America if we hadn't done this I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do that so one of the things I want to throw at you Rob is you are very busy doing amazing things right you're probably like myself but what have you been doing you know you've obviously just recently had a newborn what have you been doing to cope and what's it been like for you personally during the pandemic? Oh, thank you so much for that question. Um, I think that the obvious answer, of course, with Show Must Go Online is throwing myself into the work. I think getting to um, have something that was meaningful and that mattered uh, was, a really, was a really powerful and, and really life-saving and soul-saving thing. Um, I am quite a kinesthetic person. <laughs> I like to be active. I like to move. I like to do things. Um, and I move quite fast. And I think had I not had that, when I stop, I, I definitely start to stagnate. And I, I, I describe it as my energy starts to cannibalize. And I could turn in on myself and I can really start to kind of, it, it can, you know, ne never anything too dramatic, but, it, but I can get into quite a dark place if I'm not doing. And so I think the show has gone online really saved me from that because I, I've known people in the pandemic that have, have definitely struggled um, with, the kind of enforced inactivity and you know creative people don't do it for the money they do it because it's compulsion it's something that they have to do it's something that they need to bring into the world and so to be able to bring this into the world and, and to help other people bring their art into the world uh, was honestly the honor of my life and I think it's it's um, definitely saved me during the pandemic mm. um, unfortunately it was the 24-7 job so I haven't exercised in like a year <laughs> which is not great um so i'm I, I would love to start that but of course i now have a five week old daughter which is throwing a whole new set of challenges in the mix so one day i may exercise again we'll see uh but that is something that i do enjoy doing uh, in ideal circumstances if you like and i'll have to try and find out <laughs> what those are going to be in the in the new normal um but i think i think yeah just just finding things that matter finding community finding people that share your passions um, and, you know, that international quality of that as well. You know, I've met so many new people um, as a result of this project. Uh, and I think, I think reaching out beyond your initial circles allows you to look at this time and say, something new's happened. I've made new connections. This, this has come out of it. And it doesn't necessarily feel like you're stagnating or spinning your wheels in that way. Um, so I think, I think even, even for someone who is naturally introverted, and by that I mean my energy comes from within and I can get quite tired in large-scale social situations, meeting new people, ironically, has been the thing that has definitely, I think, given me a real lift. Brilliant. It's obviously a bit of a, a biased question to ask him. We don't really want too much favouritism to ask this, but <laughs> what, um, was there any show, if the show must go online, that personally was one of your, I wouldn't say favourites, but you really connected with and was a special place for you? 
Nice. Yeah, great question. Um, I think Richard III has a special place because it was the first time ever that we had actors that had done it before. So we did a kind of alumni production where we had people that had le learned the ropes and then were able to hit the ground running for the next show. And it, it really just cemented and solidified so many of the ideas of what Show Must Go Online went on to be. Uh, it's also the show that has some of the best performances uh, ever in it. I think The Winter's Tale is another really special one just because we, we had an amazing cast and, that, and that's amazing. But it's a play that I was not like super a fan of before this version of it, um, but getting to work on it with a clean slate and with this cast uh, and these creatives and in this medium, I really hooked into what was stunning and brilliant about it. And um, it's, I've played um, Leontes before in a rehearsed reading and it's, it's, a, it's a part that I'm desperate to do on stage because it's absolutely phenomenal. And I nearly did it, but I held myself back. <laughs> We've, we, we found Colin, who's like an order of magnitude, not only more appropriate for the role, but like has decades more experience um, in doing doing this well and doing this on big stages. So it was definitely the right move, but I was really tempted. Um, and then I think just, you know, there's Hamlet um, is fantastic. Kristen's performance in that is sensational. Deborah Ann Bird as Cleopatra, Ruth Page as Henry V, um, Evangeline Dixon as Romeo, you know, all these kind of casting choices that we made that people were like, mm, that's maybe not traditional. And then they blew it out of the water and proved that, Oh, who was it? Oh, I've forgotten. But someone said, um, oh, Magic Majid, who's the green uh, candidate for Sheffield, said, a tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. I, and I, that's ringing around my head all the time now. I absolutely love it. Oh, I love that too, actually. I need to like, steal that. That's like a really good affirmation to remember. I love that. Um, I asked Cardin this yesterday, and I want to ask you as well, on a personal note, what is your favourite Shakespeare play? If you had oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. Um, a few. My safe choice is Julius Caesar, um, because it the the relationship between Brutus and Cassius in that is one one of the most sophisticated depictions of male love that is non-sexual if you like. And that's something that existed in Elizabethan times. It exists today, but toxic masculinity has drugged it out of us. Yeah. Um, but in Shakespeare's time, you look at Romeo and Benvolio and, uh, and Brutus and Cassius, as I say, and a host of others, you see men that just genuinely have love for each other. That is not a familial love and it's not a romantic love, but it's something else. And it's a, it's a love of friendship. And I think it's called agape in, in ancient Greek, if that's of use to anyone. Uh, but it's, uh, it's absolutely... Um, a wonderful depiction of that between two deeply flawed but deeply principled people. Uh, and it's also got some banging speeches, just like banger after banger after banger. Um, and there's a murder, you know, and there's a ghost. So there's all the kind of stuff that you like about tragedies. Um, but then also Midsummer Night's Dream. And people, yeah, <laughs> people give it a hard time to is the most popular and most performed play. And that's for a reason. It's one of the best. <laughs> It's so good, um, and I've I've done it five times now. I think it is, um, and I'm I'm already looking forward to doing it again because it's just fun. I'll tell you a quick thing. Like I in my last year of uni, this is what the funniest thing is that I didn't perform, but I directed a Shakespeare show in my last year at uni, and it was um it was a Midsummer Night's Dream, but with drag artists. Fantastic! Oh, amazing! Loved it. So yeah, 
So it was really good. And I totally relate. I'd said to Cardin yesterday, both our favourites are Macbeth, um, because that's nice. but um but Midsummer is my second favourite, definitely. Um Amazing. To great Amazing. Yeah, Macbeth Macbeth is a cursed role for me. I've been casting it twice in productions that haven't gone ahead. Uh, so I'm, I, that's that's one that I'm just like when I get hold of that, <laughs> like I, a dog with a bone. It's gonna I, be ridiculous. Then like I really wanted to play Lady Macbeth in drag. Like that was my absolute dream. <laughs> so good, so good. That's such a good idea. Oh my word! Yes, yeah, I love it. I, I will. I'll be there, front row. <laughs> <laughs> so you have been doing such incredible work the last fourteen months. What are your kind of goals, and that could be personal or professional, what are your goals after the pandemic or even in the next six months? You know, you'll be raising your beautiful baby, but is there any professional goals that you've kind of decided that you might want to do now that the pandemic's starting to slowly, like, fizzle away? Yes and no. I mean, being a freelancer, it's really hard to just say, I'm going to do X or I'm going to do Y. Uh, but you, you, you have to respond to what the world is going to be willing to let you do as well, which is can be really hard sometimes when, when you have a million billion ideas. Um, I think the, the scary part, honestly, uh, and I'll be frank, is, is the idea of going back to normal. I, don't, I think theatre was broken before the pandemic. And we've, if we go back to that, it's, that's going to be the biggest missed opportunity of a generation. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, I'm already seeing a lot more digital integration being kind of programmed in at places like the Young Vic and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's really exciting to see. I'm pleased that it's happening because it's so much better for accessibility. But that, that's one small drop in the bucket. And ultimately, that's commercially motivated. That's we can make more money if we do this. So I want to see the ideologically motivated. Let's make a better, more democratic, more inclusive space that, that allows more different types of people in. Mm-hmm. Um, not least because I'm, I'm typically on the outside of that group as well. Um, but uh, I think what I'm looking forward to, I've, I've got a number of projects in the works <laughs> that are all hypothetical. Um, and I've spent most of my life foolishly believing in magic bullets, the idea that some circumstance is going to come along and that's, that's going to change everything. Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, you know. Uh, and so it's, it's going to be a slog, um, but I'm, I'm kind of ready for it. Um, certainly having a baby has upped my level of determination by about a thousand percent because there's now an imperative to survive and thrive. Um, so hopefully that'll, uh, that'll put some, put some fire behind me. Um, goals, 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 goals. I really want to do, um, a, a live in-person production, um, of Shakespeare that takes all of the learnings that we got from the hybridization of cinema and, uh, and radio and things like that in Show Must Go Online and actually puts those learnings on a stage in a, in a really vivid and uh, really innovative way. And because uh, I, when I'm not doing my um, kind of artistic work, I sometimes work as a creative um, director for multinationals uh, in the field of innovation, which is like new product development and marketing and training and stuff like that. Um, and it's so funny how the word innovation I have discovered since doing Show Must Go Online is a word that producers and producing houses are scared of. It, what they hear is risk. Uh, and so people actually do not want innovation. And I think that is one of the big things that I think theatres need to shift. You know, they might say publicly that they do want it, but my experience has, has not borne that out. Uh, and I think what's happening in regional theatre especially um, and I can't speak for Scotland per se, because I've only been here two years and one of those was a pandemic, <laughs> but certainly in the UK, um, it's, 
it's it's a, it's about making sure that you don't um, put off a vanishing audience of an older generation that have been continued to be appealed to at the expense of new audiences, new demographics. Um, and they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And if, if we continue to do that, theatre will disappear. Mm-hmm. So I th- what I'm hoping to do is just something that's in-person and innovative. Yep. <laughs> that, that doesn't feel very <laughs> ambitious, but in the context, it certainly is. I think it's very ambitious. And that you obviously have something that you can promote that you've been sharing on Twitter this week that you've been doing on online course, haven't you? That's right, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I'm doing a, a six-week online Shakespeare course uh, for uh, anybody of any level, there's no gatekeeping, there's no minimum. It has been designed in response to working with actors that are drama school trained. So it, it does get to quite an advanced level, but we do start from the beginning. Um, and what I would say is that there's enough different material in it that everyone, every different style of performer, every different learning style, etc., should be able to take something of value uh, from it. Um, it's It's been designed... Um, as well in terms of pricing uh, we've got four slots um, of the 15 available to uh, underrepresented groups um, which can be just anyone that doesn't see themselves represented on stage very often Uh, you can get a third off the ticket price uh, and there's also one of the 15 places is absolutely free it's a sponsored place uh, from me to an artist that will be picked at random. All you have to do is click the link, um, email me uh, your details, and you'll get put into a random draw, and one person's going to get a free place as well. That's amazing. Oh, this has been honestly such a delightful interview, Rob. I've actually had a lovely afternoon chatting to you. Um, we only have one question left, and then we end with our inspiring quote from our guests. And for season three of Afternoon Delight, we're looking at hope and talking about what hope means to us or a moment of hope that things weren't going well and hope got us through it. And I would love for you to share your answer before we round off. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one I've reflected on this and it's, and it's a tough one to answer just because it, it feels like as a freelancer in the arts, it is a permanent factor of your existence. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. If you had, to, if you did not have hope, you would have left the industry. <laughs> and so I think hope is a, hope is a constant. Um, I think it's, there are, there are specific instances, you know, the, um, the documentary that we made in, in Kashmir for earthquake victims, you know, the tagline for that was delivering hope because it was about the idea that we could get people to come together and to provide the funds to, to create a provision that governments weren't gonna give. Uh, and that's because Azad Kashmir, uh, it's Pakistan controlled, but Kashmir is disputed territory. And so neither India nor Pakistan want to invest in that area in case the other one wins it. And then that money's gone down the drain, if you like. And human lives are being cost by these policies. So, uh, you know, we managed to get this thing built. Uh, and I think that was never a guarantee. And when I was out there, uh, I was out there. At, at a time of the obviously the war in Afghanistan, which is still going on, by the way, alarmingly. Um, but uh, there were militants crossing that border and that was one of the avenues that they took. Um, and little did I know, as we were driving to Azad Kashmir from Islamabad in Pakistan, we were one left turn away from bin Laden's compound. We were on the highway that if you took the exit and went a little bit down down the road, you'd get to Abbottabad, which is where uh, Bin Laden's compound was. So, uh, oh, and the Marriott Hotel while I was there set on fire, and that had been bombed by terrorists a year earlier. Turned out it was just an electrical fault, thank God. Uh, but uh, it was, um, that was a time when 
we went out there with a mission of hope and you needed a lot of hope <laughs> to, to get through it, to white knuckle it, because it was, it was objectively a dangerous situation. Well, thank you for taking that hope with you and keeping it in everyday life that you apply to. Because we as artists do need hope all the time. You're so right. As a freelancer myself, I totally agree with you. From the moment you're up to the moment you go to bed, you need to have that hope to, to do this industry. Oh, Rob, this has been absolutely incredible. We end Afternoon Delight with an inspiring quote, and I would love for you to share your quote with me. Of course, absolutely. Now, I'm, all, I'd almost be surprised if this hasn't come up already. It might be obvious, but I think it's obvious because it's good. Um, I'm a fan of escapism. I'm a fan of stories. I'm a fan of mythologies. And the modern mythologies uh, for me are Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. And there's a point in the second Lord of the Rings movie where Samwise has to give a, a motivational talk to Frodo to give him the, the courage and the pluck to keep going when it all seems hopeless. Uh, and it's, it's about the power of stories to inspire, which for us as creatives, I think means a great deal. And it goes like this. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. I know now folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Oh, what a brilliant end. What a brilliant end. Definitely worth fighting for. And you have fought and you have given it to everyone across internationally. Thank you for being absolutely incredible, Rob. It's been such a delight. Thank you so much, Jordi. It has indeed been an afternoon delight. Thank you massive massive thank you to rob miles and sarah peachy's partner they've both just done incredible stuff and they're raising a wee baby now which is so cute um and managing all this and then obviously emily ingram matt rhodes you know all the performers everyone that's been involved in tsmgo what an incredible um thing to come out of the pandemic in all honesty um i think something that people maybe need to remember is that there is going to be, unfortunately, horrible people in the world, but there is going to be, as Rob said, good in the world from that quote. And he and Sarah are definitely good people in this world that have done so much for so many people. I know for me, and I mentioned this in an interview, but obviously doing On Fife and being able to direct and block from watching the Christmas Carol show and being involved, and then also just revisiting Shakespeare you know I've I've gotten back in touch with my core wanting to be a performer from when I was like a kid at school and they've helped me do that and I will say when Rob had given me a one-to-one -one, um on how to do my role for the Christmas Carol and sort of going over the rhythm and stuff like I really benefited so I'm so glad that Rob's now going to be doing introduction to Shakespeare stuff with TSMGO please check that out sign up He's incredible, the company incredible. I'm so glad that we've all met through the pandemic. Hope has been such a difficult one, but even hearing about his story, about the documentary he did, you know, there clearly are just good people in the world. So thank you, Rob, for being one of those people. And thank you as well for bringing a bigger conversation um, as a straight ally to the community. I will say, um, just before we sign off, 
the biggest thing to come out of this episode that really actually impressed me was that I got an email afterwards where Rob just wanted to clarify that, you know, was um, the language he used appropriate and stuff in terms of my pronouns? And I was like, yeah, you honestly did a great interview. Thank you so much. Because the, the beauty, but the difficulty in this world is that people like myself who are non-binary, you know, it might be one thing for me, but it's not one for all. And this is something the pandemic has really taught us that, we've all got to start appreciating people's different stories more and getting into that mindset. When I came out as non-binary on Facebook ages ago last summer, someone had said, what if we were to say you are pretty or handsome and they're very feminine and, and male-dominated languages? And I was like, listen, if you want to give me a compliment and tell me I look good, I'm never going to complain. Just don't call me he, him. It's not my pronouns. And that was it. And thank you to Rob for, again, showing what a great ally can be, where he emailed me just to double check, you know, oh, was everything I did okay? Well, I was like, yes, everything you did was brilliantly. You are just amazing. And the bigger conversation we just need to always have is we can't not allow people to make mistakes and try and fix them because that is not how the world works. And I am a firm believer in there can be no education without mistakes. So thank you, Rob, for helping educate the masses and also for just being an absolute delight. It was so great. I can't wait to see what happens in the next, oh, God knows how long this pandemic's going to be left, but, you know, however long. And then after the pandemic, and lots of love to both you and Sarah and your beautiful baby. I'm just so thrilled for you both. Well, we've got something a bit different next week. So we've got two episodes of Afternoon Delight. I am going to be interviewing my third and final CF guest for Afternoon Delight. I've got something totally different looking at wrestling, film, and um, someone that took part in the My Passion Keeps Me Well that I did for the CF Trust, which is really exciting, and he's absolutely incredible. And a political special. Yes, believe it or not, Lady Rampant and I are doing a delightful debrief on the political election in Scotland, and very much going to be covering an array of topics. I'll try and watch how many Tory jokes I make. Uh, so it's going to be that, and you're going to get to hear kind of how the election went, because politics is something that I live and stand for. Um, you know, there can't... Politics is everywhere, as Davina Campbell said. It's not just in actual politics. So, yeah, it's been a great day. I'm going to have a lovely rest of the weekend. Everyone stay safe, stay well. And remember to breathe.